All right, let's get started. In John chapter 10, I'm very excited. I've been looking forward to this teaching this chapter of the Bible. And uh, I've learned a lot in, in preparing this class more than I thought I would. So I hope that it's going to be a blessing to everyone else too. Uh, just a little bit of back, background and perspective on this. In, in the last class, Jesus had just healed a man who was born blind. And performing this miracle really antagonized the Pharisees. They got them very upset. They were upset that Jesus performed the miracle on the Sabbath for one thing. And they were also very upset that some people were wondering if, this is, if he is the Messiah, if he is the Christ, the one who had been uh, prophesied about. Um, and they threatened to kick people out of the synagogue if they, if they confessed that Jesus is, is the Messiah, if he's the Christ. And then the young man who was healed of his blindness, he was born blind, he's healed of his blindness, um, and he stands up for Jesus and takes some uh, heavy criticism for, from the Pharisees, from the religious leaders. And at the risk of getting kicked out of the synagogue, he stands up and, and speaks the truth and stands behind Jesus. Jesus hears about this and goes and finds the young man and reveals to him that he is the Son of God. And the man believes in Jesus at that point forward. So Jesus uses this opportunity, a backdrop where he's just healed someone who was born blind to talk about spiritual blindness. He uses the physical blindness to talk about spiritual blindness. And the Pharisees correctly understand that this is aimed directly at them, and he's accusing them of being spiritually blind. So this is the backdrop. Now, uh, I, I learned, one of the things I learned in studying is I was reading through an early, there's a, a preacher in, in um, what's now Turkey, uh, John Chrysostom, and he was, he's preaching through the Gospel of John. He has some interesting insights, so I'll look and see what he's preaching about, and something I noticed there was one of his lessons, he had lessons where he take a few verses at a time, and one of his lessons starts near the end of chapter 8 and goes right into chapter 9. I thought, well, he didn't break at the end of chapter 8. It's a new subject in chapter 9. I thought, that's kind of strange. And I thought, you know, I wonder how long they've had chapter breaks in the Bible. And so... Not knowing, I went and checked it out, and I think they were added until like the 12, the chapter breaks that we currently have weren't added until somewhere around the 1200s, I think. And then um, the um, the verse divisions were added in the 1500s. The, the King James was published in 1611. So the whole chapter and verse structure that we have is, in the grand scheme of things, fairly modern. So what did people do before that? Well, um, you know, I've, I've asked all these these strange questions, and one of the things that I, I was digging around was, well, right, what did people do for the first thousand years of Christianity? When they're reading through the Gospel of John, was it all one text? And, and, and some of the earliest manuscripts, going back at least to the 300s, they had these little sections that they called headings. They had a little two or three words at the beginning of a section of Scripture, that, so they broke it out in their own particular way. And the Gospel of John was broken out into 18 sections with these little headers at the top. And, um, and the way they broke it out was John chapter, what we have is John chapter 9 and John chapter 10 were all in one section. And the title of the section was Concerning the Blind Man. And I thought... That's interesting. I always thought John chapter John chapter 9 was about the blind man and John chapter 10 was about something else. But they lumped them together. I went back and looked at the scripture and actually it's all part of one story. And and it helped me to see what Jesus is talking about a little differently. So John chapter 10, you know, we have, we have a break in the chapters, but the Christians in the beginning understood John 9 and 10 is all part of the same story where the blind man and his antagonists are all there. And after the healing of the blind man, the discussion about spiritual blindness, Jesus then goes to tell those people the story about the good shepherd and the sheepfold and, and the rest of it. So 
it helps me to, to, to say, okay, when Jesus is speaking about this story about the shepherd and the sheep and the sheep pen, uh, who is he talking to and what's the context, what's the point he's trying to get across? So with that in mind, that this ties right in with, with what we were discussing before about the blind man, let's read John chapter 10. <clears throat> And and we're just going to read verse 1 for the starter here. All right, John chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. So this is just following the discussion about he's... Uh, rebuking the Pharisees as being blind, and then he follows on, he who doesn't enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. So, first question that I have is, what's a sheepfold? And it's particularly perplexing to me because here we live in, in uh, you know, north of the Boston area, and there's a large park that most of us know in the Middlesex Fells called the Sheepfold. It's about a 10-acre grassy area. And I so I wondered, I, I always I knew this word sheepfold from the park. It's a nice place to go and have a picnic around here. But what is a sheepfold? And, uh, and you know, and how do I know what he's talking about about a sheepfold? And actually it talks about a sheepfold in Numbers 32. Let's look good black back there, and you can we can see what a sheepfold is. So I want to—I like to picture things in my mind. I want to know when Jesus is talking. I want to have a, a visual image of the illustration he's giving. In Numbers chapter thirty-two, in verse sixteen, <clears throat> it says, "They came to Moses and said, we will build sheepfolds here for our cattle, and cities for our children.'" And then down to verse 24, it says, So you shall build cities for yourselves and your children and walled enclosures for your cattle and do what proceeded out of your mouth. And then verses 34 to 36, Then the sons of Gad built Dibon, Adaroth, Aror, Shofen, and Jazer, which they raised up along with Beth Nimrah and Beth Haran, fortified cities and walled enclosures for the sheep. So a sheepfold is a walled enclosure for sheep. Now, why do you want to have a walled enclosure for sheep? Don't the sheep like to get out and enjoy themselves on the nice grassy hills? Why do you have to have a penned walled area for sheep? Well, um, sheep are basically for wolves uh, walking lunch, basically. This is, this is, they're nice, fluffy, they're defenseless, and, uh, I remember Alice and I were in Albania once, and we went for Alice's. I think she remembers this, and we were going with our Albanian friends, walking up a hill in a fairly remote area, and it was it was actually it was a mountain, and um, and I was feeling like we're well off the beaten path, and I wasn't sure if I felt very unsafe there, to tell you the truth. I didn't know whether it was from wild animals or robbers or what, but we were, we were, we were definitely out there. And I remember walking along, and this was a mountainous area with, with, with green grass, and seeing on the ground this was obviously the remains of a sheep that had gotten devoured by some wild animal. So, you know, the little pieces of sheep parts that were there, everything else. And I thought, wow, this is, uh, this is uh, uh, somebody met an untimely end here by a wild animal. So what people would do from, you know, from, way, from Old Testament times still today, what, what the shepherds would do is they would, they would take their sheep out in the daytime to graze on the hills, and then nighttime, when the wild animals come out, they bring the animals back into a walled enclosure area, and that, and then, and then the shepherd could protect them that way because you know you think about all the you know you get 360 degrees, the wolves can come in from all the different angles. So that's what they do. They set up either a makeshift sheepfold out where they are, or they take it back into the village. So that's what a sheepfold is. It's a walled area 
that protects sheep or cattle or whatever. Uh, so uh, I was reading about it. I try to think what do, what do these things look like? And there was a there's a book, uh, Manners and Customs of the Bible. It was published in 1874, and the guy who wrote it had traveled to the Middle East, and he said he was talking about sheepfolds that were there at that time, which is, you know, 140, 150 years ago. And he said he was talking about what the shepherds would do back 150 years ago. And he says, typically, they would build, they bring their flocks back at night into a courtyard surrounded by a low stone wall as a shelter, and then on the top of the wall, they would put thorns. They put thorn bushes around the top. So this is like, think of, it's like, it's like an early form of a barbed wire fence to protect it. So they, stone walls, uh, thorns around the top. They bring them in at night. And so, and, and so Jesus says, uh, he talks about the sheepfold and uh, that, um, uh, so, so, so that's basically what the sheepfold is. So in the elements of the story here, there's a sheepfold, there's a door, and a doorkeeper, and a shepherd, and sheep. These are the elements of the story. So let's go back in, in John chapter 10. Read that again. Most surely I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. So that's so Jesus is trying to uh, make a distinction between himself, the good shepherd, and and the robbers who climb over the wall. He's the one who goes in the front door. So uh, you know, I, I'm wondering, okay, who's the doorkeeper in this story? You know, there's a door, there's a doorkeeper, there's a shepherd, there's sheep, all these different elements. And then the strangers are those who are not the good shepherd. Um, Let's read, actually, we're going to read all the way down to, to verse 6. Picking up verse 2. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. So, um, why is Jesus telling this story at this particular time? He just healed the blind man, and he tells the, blind, the former blind man, I am the Son of God, and he says, I believe you, and he worships him. And then Jesus tells this story about when the shepherd shows up, the door opens up, the doorkeeper opens it, and his sheep follow him. I think well, he's using this illustration to explain what just happened with the former blind man. He had withstood the opposition from the Jewish leaders. He was cast out of the synagogue. He recognized Jesus, the Son of God, worships him. The Pharisees are those who were spiritually blind. I think what Jesus is saying is the blind man who was just healed is one of the good sheep. He heard my voice and is following me. That's why he's telling the story to illustrate what just happened. Uh, as opposed to the Pharisees who were either not the shepherd's sheep or maybe even they're the bad guys who are trying to climb over the wall. So I think... The question of why he's talking about this, to me, that all fits in context of what's going on here, especially when we consider that John 9 and 10 are all talking about the same thing. It's an extension of the same story. And then Jesus says something here, uh, which is, uh, we could easily miss this, but I want to spend a little time uh, thinking about it. John chapter 10, verse, we're going to read verses 7 to 10. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. So I'm left with a bunch of questions here. He says, 
I am the door of the sheep, not one of the doors. He's, he's, there's only, he says, the door, there's only one. And uh, he says, anyone who enters by me, in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and go in and out and find pasture. So when Jesus says, I am the door, and you have to go in and out by me, well, what door is he talking about? So the question I have is, is there some prophecy about a door in the Old Testament that he's referring to here? So I think that, you know, the prophets, that Isaiah or David ever talk about some door that's going to come in the future through which people will enter to be saved? And I couldn't think of anything. And then I thought, well, are there any examples of doors? that someone has to go through in order to be saved in the Bible. Can you think of any examples of special doors that the only way someone could be saved is they have to go through that door? And the first thing I thought of is the first door that's mentioned in the Bible. And it's the story, it's in the story of Noah's Ark. Let's take a look at that. Now, now, the word door that's used here, it's, it's a pretty general term. It can mean, and it, it's used many places throughout the scriptures, and it can mean a door, like what we think of as a door to a house. It could be a gate, for like a gate on a fence would be considered the same word. An entrance into any type of structure, or even the door to Abraham's tent, so be a fabric or a, a fabric type structure, a loose structure like that. That would be considered a door. So the word door is kind of a, is, it's used to, to convey, it's basically an entranceway uh, into some kind of a structure. So the first place where door appears is in Noah's Ark. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 6. And read verses 14 to 22. So God gives instru- Lord gives instruction to Noah for building the ark. He says, "Make yourself an ark of square timber. You shall make the ark in compartments and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Thus you shall make the ark: three hundred cubits in length, fifty cubits in breadth, thirty cubits in height. Now, when you assemble the ark, you shall finish it up to a cubit to the top and set the door in its side." You shall make the ark with lower, second, and third stories. And behold, I'm bringing flood water on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, in which is the breath of life. But whatever is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. From every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing on the earth after its kind, two of every kind, they will enter into the ark with you, male and female, to keep them alive. You shall also take for yourself all kinds of food to eat. You shall gather it both for yourself and them. Then Noah did according to the Lord God uh, commanded him to do. So he did. So God gives instruction about building the ark and... Uh, you know, he says, pitch on the outside to make it waterproof. He tells them how big to make it, how long, how wide, how tall. And then he says, you will put the door in the middle of the ark. Now, I make my living as a civil engineer, and I'm designing structures for water and wastewater infrastructure. And I, I notice that there's one problem in the story <laughs> here. And, and whenever we're designing any structure in which there's going to be people working inside of it, you never ever build something with only one door. Because if there's a disaster or an emergency, you want to have multiple doors. Let's say there's a fire that breaks out on the ark or something like that. You always want to have at least two ways of getting out. But the ark, it says you will put the door in the middle of the ark. So I noticed that as someone who designed structures, it was unusual to me that there's only one door because it talks about the door. Now, this door here, 
The only way that people could be saved, and he took some of all kinds, is that they had to go through this door into the ark and be saved. And then it says after that that the Lord closed up the ark so that nobody could get into it after that. After the rain started to come down, the Lord Lord himself closed the ark up. So this was the first door, and I thought, well, this is the only way people can be saved is going through that door. All those who were inside the ark who passed through the door were saved. All those on the other side of the door were destroyed, including the animals. So I thought, well, that, that's an interesting story about a door that, uh, that will lead to salvation. I wonder if there's another one. And I thought of another door in the story of the Passover. Now, you might not have thought about this, but there's a significant door in the story of the Passover, which is also tied in with salvation. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 21. Unusual doors in the Bible. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 to 23. This is in connection with the Passover. Now Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go away and take a lamb for yourselves according to your families and sacrifice the Pascha. Then you shall take a bunch of hyssop Dip it in the blood of the basin and strike the lintel of the doorposts with blood in the basins. But none of you shall go out from the door of the house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and doorposts, the door will pass by the door and and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. So the Passover, the tenth plague... There's a door that the people of God have to be protected. They have to go inside the door, and this door is different in that it has blood on the sides and the top. It's a blood-stained door. And it's the people who go inside this blood-stained door who are protected when the destroyer comes over Egypt and brings death on every single household except the ones protected by the blood of the lamb on the door. Um, I was mentioning this. We had the janitor over for dinner uh, this week, and I was talking about these unusual doors, and she pointed one out to me that I had missed. It's in Genesis chapter 19 in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I didn't even think about this one. Uh, But let's turn there. This is another interesting door that separates the righteous few from the unrighteous many who were about to be destroyed. Genesis chapter 19 in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So when he saw them, he rose to meet them, bowed his face down to the ground. Then he said, Behold, my lords, turn into your servant's house and rest and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go your way. But they said, no, we'll spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast, baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they went to sleep, the men of the city, the Sodomites, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. Thus they called to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, By no means, my brethren, do not act wickedly. I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let, them, let me bring them out to you that you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men since, it's, uh, since this is the reason they've come under the protection of my roof. But they said, Stand back. You came in to sojourn among us. Was it also to be making judgments? Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands, pulled Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. Then they struck the men in the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, and they became weary trying to find the door. So very interesting. Here you have 
The righteous few are inside the door. The many wicked are outside the door. And those who are outside are struck with blindness and can't find the door. Now, is this a coincidence? But this, the door of separation is shut suddenly by the angels and uh, ultimately all those who are outside are destroyed by fire. Now, I was thinking in the middle of the night or sometime early this morning to myself, there are four stories about that foreshadow the day of final judgment and in, in early in the scriptures. There are four stories. There's the story of the flood in Noah. There's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, there's the story of um, uh, the Passover. And there's one more story. It's the story of Jericho. But I said, I know there's no, there's no door in that story. The, story. the story is about a window. The window has a scarlet cord. And I didn't remember that there was any door in that story. But let's go back and take another look at the fourth story foreshadowing the day of judgment. <clears throat> let's read Joshua chapter 2. I'm always looking for patterns in the scripture here. Is this, is this a coincidence or, or what? So I, I was going back Assuming it wasn't here, and I was surprised at what I found. Genesis, I'm sorry, Joshua chapter 2, we're going to read verses 14 to 21. So this is Rahab who risks her life in Jericho to protect the two spies. And the spies uh, make a deal with her that she will be protected under certain circumstances. So uh, this is the spies, verse 14. Then the men said to her, our life for your life, even to death. Then she said, when the Lord shall deliver the city to you, deal with me in mercy and truth. After this, she let them down through the window and said to them, go away to the hill country, lest the pursuers happen to find you. Hide there for three days until your pursuers return from their search for you. Afterwards, you shall depart and go your way. So the men said to her, We'll be without fault regarding this oath of yours. For behold, we will come into a part of the city... And you will set a sign. You shall hang this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. Then you shall gather yourself and your father and mother and brothers into your father's house. Whoever shall go outside the door of your house, his guilt shall be upon him and will be free from this oath of yours. But we will be responsible for whoever who is with you in your house. But if anyone injures us or reveals these words of ours, you should be free from this oath of yours. Then she said to them, let it be so according to your word, and she sent them away. So, I was floored. I couldn't believe this. All four stories about final, final judgment. And he says, if, you stay, if the people stay in the door, they'll be saved. Uh, many early Christian writers talk about this story about the scarlet cord hanging out the window of escape, and they see that as foreshadowing the blood of Christ, that she's representative of the church, the day of destruction, the world is going to be destroyed, the, the righteous few will be saved who are protected by the blood of the Lamb, the scarlet cord, very sim similar to the, uh, uh, the blood on the, door, the doorposts of the houses in the story of the, of the, uh, the Exodus and Passover. So, I'll throw it back in your court here. Four stories in the Bible that foreshadow final judgment. In all four stories, judgment hangs on a door. The righteous few on one side of the door are saved. The wicked many on the other side of the door face destruction and the judgment of God, and it comes by surprise. Is this a coincidence? Or is there something planned and woven into these stories, written a thousand years before the coming of Jesus, all of which feature a significant door? And they're in four different locations. Noah, in the story of Noah, we don't know where Noah was. 
But this is representing a flood that faces the entire world. And the story of, of uh, and then we have one story in Egypt, one story in Sodom, and one story in, in Jericho. But, but they all have these elements in common to prepare us for what's to come. So this is over a thousand years before Jesus comes and he says, I am the door. Um, so uh, that's what I'm wondering here. It seems like it's hard for me to believe that this is a coincidence that Jesus is saying this. I believe that the Holy Spirit has woven into, this, into each of these stories something to prepare us for what Jesus would reveal in John chapter 10. Um, one of the most disturbing things that people, you know, I share my faith with other people, they, they'll I say, do you mean to tell me that you think the Christians are the only people that are saved? What about all these other groups that are out there? What about all these other people? Okay, Jesus said, I am the door, not I am one of the doors. He said, I am the door. In all of these stories, there was one door through which you could be saved. And, you know, basically one per household in the, in the story of the Exodus. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and the apostles quote from Psalm 118. And they, they're speaking to the Jewish leaders. The question is, is Jesus the only way? Is there only one door? And they say, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which became the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Um, one of the disturbing things in, in the gospel is that there is only one way to be saved. And in all of these stories, it was only of righteous few who were saved. And it really it reminds me of a, the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 13 about another door that will be closed. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one of them said, Lord, are there few who are saved? This is a question I hear a lot of times. Are, are, really, are only a few people going to be saved? Is that possible? That most people are going to face destruction? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many I say, will, for, I say, uh, for, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door. And you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you're from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he'll say, I tell you, I do not know you where you're from. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. They'll come from east and west, from north and south and sit down at the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are, there are last who will be first and first who will be last. So very sobering teaching from Jesus is, is are only a few people going to be saved? He says, yes, it is only a few people. You need to strive to enter through the narrow gate, and you're not going to have forever. He says, you better do that, and you better be urgent about it, because there are going to be people who are saying, hey, we were hanging out with you. We were spending time with you. And he'll say, I never knew you. You didn't enter through the door when you had an opportunity to do that. Uh, many will be thrust out of the kingdom of God. So... In all these stories, judgment, the day of judgment is going to come by surprise, even as Jesus illustrates here, and we better make sure that we are getting through the door and staying on the inside. Is that the, the people in the story of the Passover were told, you need to stay inside the room, protected by the blood of the Lamb, 
until the next day comes. And in Jericho, when the day of destruction comes, when Jesus or Joshua comes to level the city and bring destruction and judgment on the city of Jericho, he says, you need to stay inside that door. Keep your family members inside that protected room. Or, or uh, their, blood's, their blood's not on us. They need to stay in that room. They need to be, they need to be remaining uh, in the vine in righteousness there. So, uh, um, so, so some powerful lessons about that. There's only one door. Only the few who make, through, make it through it will be, will be saved. The opportunity is not going to be there forever. One day the door will be closed and it will be too late to enter. If you're outside the door, don't delay. Don't drag your feet because you don't know when it's going to be closed. It will be closed by surprise. And once we're on the right side of that protective door, we need to, be, we need to do everything it takes to stay there until the day of judgment comes. Uh, Jesus is that door, and I believe that the Holy Spirit was trying to communicate things about the door that would come in the future, who he announces here is himself. Uh, A question that that may have come up to you, Jesus says, all who came before me were thieves and robbers. In in, in John chapter 10, Um, Now, a lot of people over the ages have asked the question, all those who came before him, you mean Moses and the prophets? They were thieves and robbers? Is that what he's saying? But let's take a look at what he actually says here. He says, in verse 8, All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Now, did the sheep hear Moses and the prophets? Yes. Obviously they did. Uh, And think about it. Did they hear Moses and the prophets? Of course they did. Jesus said in John chapter 5, we cover this, He said, if you believe Moses, you believe me, for he wrote about me. The good-hearted people will listen to Moses and the prophets. In John chapter 1, it says, When Philip found Nathanael, says, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So the good-hearted people listened to the Moses and the prophets. And he says, the, 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 uh, All who came before me were thieves and robbers, and the sheep won't listen to them. Obviously, he's not talking about that. So who is he talking about all those who came before him? that uh, they would not uh, hear them. Deuteronomy 18, when Moses gives the great prophecy about the one who would come, the great prophet in the future, he says, when he comes, you must hear him. Peter talks about that in Acts chapter 3. Anyone who will not hear him will be cut off from the people. You have to hear this prophet when he comes. So this is Jesus saying, they hear his voice. That means not just listening to what he's saying, but they're following him. They're following along. They're obeying what he's saying. The thieves and robbers, well, who are they? If they're not Moses and the prophets, all who came before, the people wouldn't listen to him. Well, in Acts chapter 5, it talks about Judas and Thutis. Thutis. Uh, Gamaliel says, correctly, he says, well, there were two people who came up who claimed to be somebody important, Judas and Thutis, and they gathered a group of people around them, but what they did became of nothing because it was of man and not of God. He said, don't worry about these guys because if their activity is of man, it will fail just like theirs did. But if it's, it's of God then uh, you better not mess with them because you'd be fighting against, against God. So there were people who rose up claiming to be the Messiah or somebody important before the time of Jesus. I think that's what he's talking about. All those who came before me who were claiming to be the Messiah or the great prophet uh, were, were thieves and robbers. Um, there's a, an early Christian writer 
who, uh, Clement of Alexandria, who lived around uh, year 150 to 215, he was a teacher of the church in Alexandria, Egypt, and he commented on this passage here. And here's what he said. He said, But they say, as it is written, all who were before the Lord's coming were thieves and robbers, all then who are in the word. But the prophets, being sent and inspired by the Lord, were not thieves, but servants. The scriptures accordingly say, and he's quoting from from, uh, Proverbs 9, Wisdom sent her servants, inviting them with loud proclamation to a goblet of wine. So this is a picture where wisdom, in 1 Corinthians it talks about Jesus as the wisdom of God. Wisdom sends out her servants to issue the invitation to the great banquet. So the, the, the servants were the prophets of God. They're not, they're not thieves and robbers. He says, But philosophy, it is said, was not sent by the Lord, but came stolen or given by a thief. It was then some power or angel who had learned something of the truth, but did not abide in it, that inspired and taught these things, not without the Lord's knowledge, who knew before the constitutions of each essence the issues of futurity, but without his prohibition. For the theft which reached men then, had some advantage, not that he who perpetrated the theft had utility in the eye, but providence directed the issue of the audacity deed to the audacious deed to utility. So you say basically, the philosophers of the world were thieves and robbers. They stole some of the truth, fragments of the truth, and they are peddling it off. He says that the philosophers of this world are basically thieves and robbers who have a little bit of the truth, and God lets them do that. Mm-hmm. He continues, he says, The devil is called thief and robber, having mixed false prophets with the prophets, as tares with the wheat. All then that came before the Lord were thieves and robbers, not absolutely all men, but all the false prophets and all who were not properly sent by him. For the false prophets possessed the prophetic name dishonestly, being prophets but prophets of the liars. So he's talking about that Satan has stolen some of the truth, repackaged it, and there are thieves and robbers, the false prophets and the philosophers of this world. It reminds me of what what Jesus said in John chapter 10.10, the thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. Sounds a lot like Satan. He says, I have come to have life that they may have it to the full. Now this is, this is a, a very interesting passage here. I've come to have life. Uh, in, the, in the NIV it says, have it to the full. I remember, remember that from years ago when I was reading out of the NIV. New King James, I come that they may have life that they may have it more abundantly. The ESV says, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So more abundantly, abundantly to the full, it's all pretty much the same thing. But you get the picture. So here's here's the question. When Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly or to the full, what do you think of? What do you think of? About that, and I think of I think of things that were told to me in the past in connection with this scripture. You know, I was taught the scripture a certain way, and, and I have to ask myself, what does Jesus mean here? And this is this is a, a, a extremely significant passage for the modern peddlers of the prosperity gospel. Now, prosperity gospel, they're different versions of it. The hardcore prosperity gospel is basically God wants you to be rich and prosperous and healthy and have just a wonderful life. That's life to the full. Jesus came here so that we can have a life to the full. And, uh, you know, obviously this 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 kind of teaching, it's, it's amazingly popular. It came out of Protestantism in America and it's spreading all over the world. And the tragic thing is, the place where this ta- has the most traction is in the poorest countries. This gospel is spreading all over in Africa and in the poorer communities in, in the United States because people are poor, they want to be rich, and they're saying, the message is, God wants you to be rich and comfortable. So become a Christian 
and, and we'll give it to you. It's basically uh, the peddlers of this. And so I'm wondering, I'm wondering, how do they get there reading the same Bible that I'm reading, that God wants you to be rich and prosperous? I don't see this anywhere in the scriptures. And so I had to borrow from my background. See, I'm a, you know, I tell people I'm a civil engineer. Actually, I'm an environmental engineer. The old name for environmental engineer was called sanitary engineer. That's what they used to call what I do for a living. And, uh, you know, people think I, I, I probably wear a nice white shirt, you know, maybe, maybe yeah. with a tie when I'm going into work, something like that. I'm working in an office. Well, that's, you know, I don't wear a tie, but some of the times I'm working in an office setting, but sanitary engineers deal with wastewater treatment and sewers, sewer pipes, okay? And sometimes in my job, what I have to do, and Allison knows this, is I have to go down into sewers and walk around in sewers that are full of sewage. So I have, I have to wear, and I'm wearing hip waders. I've got, uh, I've got uh, special protective gear on. I've got a harness so that if I pass out in there, I don't tell Allison this part. If I pass out in there, I have a harness and a rope so they can, they can yank me out of the hole if, if, uh, if I get overcome by toxic gases or something. I have a gas monitor that I'm wearing down there. So this is great training for me for investigating the prosperity gospel because I have to dive right down into the spiritual sewer. And so, you know, it's like in my profession, I do this so that all of you don't have to. So I decided I'm going to don the spiritual rubber boots and go down into the sewer of the modern uh, uh, prosperity gospel. And, and I want to understand what are these people thinking? How do they peddle this stuff? How do they sell it to, to millions of people? How do they do this? And there's got to be some logic that they're using, which totally escapes me because I don't see any of this in the scripture at all. So here's, it's like, like I said, I want to understand how they think and then demolish what they're, what they're teaching from the ground up. So here, here's how the prosperity gospel goes. It goes like this. We're God's children and God wants to bless his children with prosperity and health. And he's promised us prosperity. All we need to do is claim that promise that he's given us. So we just have to become Christians and then ask for it pray for it, and believe he's going to give it to us. And so they'll take, here's some of the verses that they'll take totally out of context to back that up. Jeremiah 29, 11, this is one of my son's favorites for being misused scriptures. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. There you have it. And not harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Now, they don't mention that this is after 70 years of, of uh, bondage in Babylon that he's going to do this and bring them back. They don't mention that part. Another one, Philippians 4.19, the favorite verses, and God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Wow, isn't that awesome? God's going to meet all my wants and need, oops, my needs here. <laughs> Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. What are the desires of my heart? Wealth prosperity, materialism, nice vacation. If I delight myself in the Lord, he's going to give me all the desires of my heart. Doesn't that make sense? That's false teaching number one. False teaching number two. These things are obviously wrong. False teaching number two. In order to obtain these blessings of health and prosperity that God is just dying to give us, we need to become Christians, ask Believe and will see receive blessings of material prosperity and health and uh, the verses that they'll tie into Matthew seven eleven. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? So we just have to ask God for all this money that He's waiting to give us. Uh, and Matthew 21, 22, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe and you will receive. Believe and receive. There it is right there, okay? False teaching number three, we can access these material blessings through the principle of sowing and reaping. Okay, now this, this, this is a good one here. Main, namely, if we sow money by faith, 
perhaps by giving it to this prosperity gospel leaders ministry, for example, then God will multiply and give it back to us many, many folks. So if I give this televangelist $1,000, I should expect I'll probably get $100,000 back. This is a good investment. I'm just looking out for myself here. And they'll use scriptures like uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, taken totally out of context. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So sow the money to these religious leaders, and I can expect, I, I should just be sitting back and waiting for the mail to come with checks in the mail for me because, because I've sowed, and now I'm going to be reaping the spiritual harvest here. I've sown money, I'm going to reap money. Or Malachi 3.10, taken out of context as if the law of Moses is still in effect here. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. A tithe is one-tenth of your income, tenth-tenth of your wealth, that there may be food in my house. Try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. I will, will I not, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessings, there will not be room enough to receive it. This is a favorite verse of the prosperity gospel. The reason God isn't blessing you, the windows of heaven are just, are just ready to dump all this wealth and prosperity and health on you. But you're the one who's holding it back because you're not giving the tithe. You have to give me 10% of your wealth and then just sit back and watch. watch. You, you won't be able to handle all the blessings that God is giving you. So you see where this is going. Some of these guys are multimillionaires. They have $50 million. They've got jet planes. They live in palaces because they're scamming people, taking scriptures out of context like this. So what's such a big deal about the modern prosperity? We could sit back and laugh at these people and say, how could you be so foolish as to believe something like that? But this is a dangerous thing. Paul warned us in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says that, he says that in the future... People will heap up for themselves teachers that will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. What do people want to hear? I can be wealthy and comfortable, and God wants to, wants to be my great enabler here. That's what they want to hear. Jesus told us no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God in money. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 from the ESV. You can't do You can't serve God in mammon. You can't serve God in money. These are people who really want to be rich and they want to use God and, and these preachers are using religion to get themselves rich. Paul Warners in 1 Timothy chapter 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, a snare, many foolish and harmful desires which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You're not going to hear this coming out of, uh, of the mouths of these people. Love of money is, is a source of all kinds of evil. This isn't something that's good. Uh, Jesus warned us about the dangers of materialism. In Mark chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, the parable of the sower, he says, the ones who are sown among the thorns are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things entering choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Is this desire for wealth and riches is strangling people spiritually and Jesus warned us about this. This is another verse, Luke 9, 23, that they're not going to preach. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You've got to be willing to suffer. That's the narrow and difficult way is a way of suffering, following the example of Jesus, who suffered because of the joy that was set before him. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Think of the lives that the apostles led. Did they live lives of ease, comfort, health, and wealth? Of course not. Paul faced torture, hardship, and death. Did he not understand what the gospel was? Um, Paul said that all who live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Peter and Paul 
told the slaves that they had to submit even in the face of beating from harsh masters. This wasn't about you're going to have a comfortable life. The prosperity gospel is rotten to the core, and we need to be prepared to demolish it. It also turns people away from Christ. I think people look at this, these preachers who are selling, they're on television, they're on the radio, they're selling millions of books, and they're corrupting the gospel and making it a laughingstock. People look at this, they say, if this is the Christian faith, it's just full of hypocrisy and greed covering this, especially devastating in places like Africa. It can fool people into thinking that they can follow Christ without including suffering. And then when trials come in their lives, they lose their faith and think that something strange has happened. And Peter said in 1 Peter 4, don't think it's strange when you're facing fiery trials as if something, something strange is happening to you. This is part of the Christian life. Um, so when Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, that he came to give us the abundant life, what is he talking about? He's not talking about prosperity and health and wealth. That's ridiculous. Most, of, most half of the world, you become a Christian, you're going to face persecution and hardship and financial difficulty as a result of it. So this is, this is total nonsense. Um, there are many examples where Jesus is speaking and he uses a word or a term that can be understood two ways, in a physical sense or a spiritual sense, and he confuses people who don't have good hearts. Throughout the Gospel of John, this is the case. In John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. The people think in the physical temple, he's talking about the temple of his body. He tells Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. He's thinking of a physical birth. No, no, it's a spiritual birth. Um, Jesus talks about light and darkness. In, in, in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me and I'd give you to drink and you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't have to come here again. He's talking about spiritual water, not physical water. Uh, then the people, Jesus says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. They're thinking physical food. No, he's talking spiritual food. He talks about sowing and reaping a harvest, talking about souls, a spiritual harvest. He's talking about slavery. Anyone who sins, that, that he's talking about people being in slavery and I will set you free. People are thinking physical slavery in John 8. No, he means spiritual slavery. He says anyone who follows him will not see death. They're thinking, well, wait a minute, Abraham died. They're thinking physical death. No, he means spiritual death he's talking about. The same thing with blindness. Physical blindness versus spiritual blindness. In John chapter 11, in the story of Lazarus, he says, Lazarus is asleep, let's go wake him up. And the people say, no, no, if he's sleeping, let him sleep. Sleep is good for sick people. He's talking about spiritual, he's using the word sleep referring to death and waking up to the resurrection. So Jesus did this throughout the Gospel of John. When he says that I came to give life abundantly, what kind of life is he talking about? He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about spiritual life, as he says all over the place. Um, so we have to understand that as Jesus is talking. First John chapter two in, in, in First John chapter two verse twenty-five says, "And this is the promise He has promised us: eternal life." The abundant life is eternal life. The abundant life is that's what we're looking forward to. Paul said in Romans 8, I don't consider the sufferings of the present time as worthy of being compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, I has not seen nor has ear heard nor have they entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. This is the abundant life, what God has prepared in the future, what he wants to give us. In Hebrews 10, it says that we have better and enduring possessions for ourselves in heaven. This is the life we are living for. I believe that that life will encompass the abundant life, the eternal life, will encompass right now being free 
from the slavery of sin, not from the punishment of sin, but with the grace of God, repenting and walking with the light and not being enslaved and controlled by sin. This is the abundant life. We can't take a phrase of Jesus and take out our coloring, our, 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 our little coloring kit and start coloring in what we want to believe when it talks about the abundant life. It's not what do we think our abundant life should be, but what is he actually talking about? That's the abundant life that Jesus came to give. So just to, to wrap up, we've covered a lot today. Uh, John chapter 10, let's, let's understand that the story about the good shepherd and the sheep following the good shepherd is tied in with the blind man and his adversaries. He was the one, he was one of the good sheep. He heard the shepherd's voice, recognized the Son of God, and was willing to follow him. That's what he's talking about. Let's be like him. Jesus is, says that there's one door leading to salvation. He's the one as was foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament, the four examples that we looked at. And Jesus did promise us abundant life, but it's eternal life. It's not life in this world. And so let's be careful not only to avoid the obvious blatant examples, the ridiculous examples of people say, you know, send in money and you're going to become a millionaire. God wants you to be rich. But even the more insidious forms of the prosperity gospel that have infected so many churches of, of telling people these, these false promises that you become a Christian and you're going to have a great life, you'll have a wonderful family, your kids will be great. This is a great way to enhance your life and this is why Jesus came. He came to give us eternal life. He came to deliver us from enslavement to sin, not to make us rich and comfortable. Amen.